You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right. Well, good morning. I'm going to read for you Proverbs 13:20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. There is this um, interesting operating law in life, kind of annoying sometimes, I think if we're being honest, that you become the most like the people you spend the most time with. The people that fill the most space in your life, they have a tendency to rub off on you, to influence you. Their characteristics, both good and bad, and in contrast, your characteristics, both good and bad, uh, are somewhat contagious, the Bible says. A lot like the flu, which by the way is uh, in record numbers uh, right now in uh, at least our country, highest number of positive flu tests since 1997. At this point, you're like, who cares, right? It's, we're over it. But the numbers do indicate that it's very contagious. And in the same way, Scripture indicates that our characteristics, the, the way that we operate, the way that we respond to one another, our, our, our general disposition in the world is contagious, that it rubs off on people, both the godly characteristics and the ungodly characteristics. They're all contagious. They rub off on the people that we spend the most time with. And, and so, for example, if you wanted to be a gentler person, if you find that after some self-examination, you are overbearing or perhaps a bit harsh, and you think, you know what, the Spirit of God has put on my heart that I need to be a gentler person, then the Scripture would have you begin to spend time with other people who you identify as gentle themselves. If, if you were, for example, wanting to pursue holiness, to be more serious about your pursuit of holiness, then it would benefit you to spend time with people who are in deep pursuit of holiness. It would be foolish, on the other hand, to spend a lot of time with people who don't care about Jesus or, or, or care about obedience to him that would influence you away from holiness. You become like the people that you spend the most time with. This morning, I want us to spend some time with some individuals in Luke chapter one, in hopes that some of their characteristics might rub off on us a little bit, that we might become a little bit more like them. That, that in this third week of our Advent series, The Light of the World, that the, the uh, characteristics of these individuals whose God light, or who, on whom God's light shined down upon uh, would rub off on us some. Luke begins uh, in chapter one his introduction to his gospel account, and uh, he makes the case right off the bat, don't take my word for it. I've done a lot of research. I've done a lot of talking with people. All of the information in this entire account of the gospel came from, he says, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So, so Luke has done due diligence. He's gone around, 
he's collected the stories, he's corroborated the evidence, and he is putting down on paper for you, the reader, to know the events that happened with regard to Jesus and to be able to trust them, to know that there's some veracity to it, that this isn't just a, uh, an old wives tale, this, this stacks up, right, it, it adds up. And he wastes no time. After he gets through with the introduction, about four verses, he jumps right into the story. And he immediately begins to introduce us to some individuals who are crucial to the beginning part of Jesus' narrative. He introduces us to a husband and wife named Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then we meet an angel named Gabriel, and then we meet Elizabeth's relative, a young woman named Mary, and her soon-to-be husband, Joseph. And as we read the account... If you pay close attention to these individuals, there are certain characteristics that stand out in each of them, certain aspects of who they are that are central to uh, the gospel story. And so the hope this morning for me, uh, for you, is that as we spend time with these people in the story, hearing their story, seeing the characteristics that they embody, that they might rub off on us a little bit that they may influence us some in some ways, that we might become a little bit more like them. So let's jump in. We're going to begin with the zeal, that's a good word, of Zechariah. I had to do it because Zechariah is a Z and, and zeal also. But it, but it stacks up. Just, just wait. Look at the story. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and sta uh, statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Luke introduces us first to uh, two individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth, a husband and a wife. What do we know of them? We know first that uh, Zechariah is a priest, and particularly a priest in what is called the division of Abijah. Look at, at verse 5. That's it's a, a priest in the division of Abijah. Now, what does this mean? During this time, the priesthood, during Jesus' age, uh, and, and somewhat before that, was divided into 24 divisions. There were 24 units, if you want to think of it that way, of different priestly teams. And each of these divisions were uh, in charge of temple duties twice a year, two weeks out of the year. Uh, and, and so for Zechariah, he is in one of these 24 divisions known as the division of Abijah. Chapter one tells us that during this time, uh, this was one of the weeks that his division was on duty. Look at verses eight and nine. It says, now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, there it is, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So the division of Abijah is on duty during this time in the temple. If you ever find yourself, by the way, in First uh, Chronicles chapter 24, um, which why would you? right? Unless you were studying First Chronicles. But it is a, uh, a great story that outlines these 24 divisions of the priesthood. And what we discover when we begin to read this chapter is that these 24 divisions all uh, are, are a part of Aaron's descendancy. The 24 divisions represent 24 of Aaron's descendants. So Abijah is one of the descendants of Aaron. That means that Zechariah here as a priest is not only a priest in the division of Abijah, but by extension, secondly, he's a descendant of Aaron himself. Now, why does this matter? If you're not familiar with biblical history, Aaron is a huge deal. 
Aaron was the brother of Moses, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, second only to Jesus, the New Testament tells us. Uh, He was a descendant of Levi, which means that the Levitical line of priests or uh, the book of Leviticus, if you're familiar with that one, probably try to dodge that as much as possible. These people in the Levitical line were responsible for uh, the entire priestly duties of Israel. Aaron is a descendant of Levi. Beyond that, he's the first ever high priest of Israel. So that makes him a very, very big deal. Leviticus chapter 8 and 9, Moses anoints Aaron as the first ever high priest over the nation of Israel. So get this, uh, probably more history than you bargained for, but all of this to say, Zechariah wasn't a nobody, right? He's not only a priest, but, but he's a descendant of Aaron, and he's a Levite, and he is on duty during this time in the temple. Verse 5 tells us that his wife Elizabeth is also a descendant of Aaron, one of the daughters of Aaron. So these are, uh, uh, this is a very religiously established family, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that to say that he is born into the priesthood, he marries a woman from Aaronic descendancy, and they seem to be pretty committed to serving God. Like they are all in, right? They have devoted their lives to this cause. They're devout people. Now, you could say it this way, Zechariah then was zealous for God. He was a zealous man. He had zeal for the Lord. The New Testament uses a couple different words when it describes zeal. Uh, a noun and a verbal form are found. Zelotes uh, is the, the noun form. Uh, zeluo is the verbal form. And it just simply means an eager or devoted adherent an eager or devoted adherent. It conveys deep commitment. It's someone who has a deep conviction towards something that leads to persistent action. So to be zealous for God then, understand this, we, we kind of think of zeal or, or zealotry as a bad thing. It's normally seen as like kind of legalistic or pharisaical or like you don't want to be zealous. But really, when we think about this just for its definition, to be a zealous person for God is actually a very good thing. It's actually... And to make the case here, what God expects of his people. So Paul in chapter, uh, or Titus chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, he says that Christians are to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Talking about the second advent, by the way. And then in verse 14, he says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. These are the people that Jesus has in mind that he has prepared beforehand for him to come and take possession of. That we are to be, as we wait for his return, zealous to do the things that he has commanded us to do. Jesus in chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 19, says, To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Be eager, in other words, to make things right. So to be zealous for God is to be eager to not only do what God has said, but when we don't do what God has said, to be eager to repent of that. So get this, Zechariah is a zealous man, and as a result of his commitment to serving God, he happens to be in the right place at the right time. 
God selects him, it says, through a, a, a process that, that is referred to as casting lots. It's, it's kind of like drawing straws, uh, but there is, it seems like some spiritual aspect to it. This is how uh, early believers and even prior to the New Testament would make major decisions. They believed that the will of God was reflected through this casting of lots process. And, and so he is selected by God through casting of lots. He goes into the temple. He's the one Buddy, you got it. You got the short straw, but in a good way. So you go into the temple now, and you get to light the incense. And it's there, while he's doing this, that Gabriel, the angel, encounters him. Look at verses 11 through 17. It says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Pause there for a moment. Two things. Number one, angels are terrifying. You need to understand that. We have this very rich artistic history of making them look like cute little babies with angels and diapers. Um, Almost every time angels appear in the Bible, what do they have to say to their audience? Fear not. Be not afraid. Hold on. I'm a good guy. Right? Presumably because they don't look like a good guy. They're terrifying. They're angelic figures. They're supernatural. They're heavenly beings. The second thing that I want to just say quickly about this, this is again as a side note, is to dispel a myth that's commonly believed in the church. And I I don't know it's necessarily a bad one, but I just want to set the record straight with clarity, which is with regard to Gabriel being an archangel. How many of you are, are under the impression Gabriel is an archangel in the Bible? None of you. All Bible scholars. Great. Good to see that. Um, there is a good case that can be made that Gabriel is an archangel. We see him doing a lot of the things uh, that Michael, the archangel, does, but I'm not comfortable teaching this as a fact, namely because Gabriel's never actually called an archangel. Michael is the only one named in the Bible as an archangel, and incidentally, just Bible facts, Gabriel and Michael are the only two angels ever named in the Bible. Uh, None of the others are ever actually named. Gabriel is, however, referred to as one who stands in the presence of God. Uh, He plays a prevalent role in the book of Daniel, seems to do a lot of the same things that Michael does, so maybe he is an archangel. I mean, I think, again, you can make a good case for that, but the scripture never specifically says that. So just a heads up, as you're reading through Christianity, Christmas literature and thinking about these different stories, it's not uncommon to hear Gabriel called an archangel. That may not be the case. He is an important angel. We can agree on that. Keep reading, verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. All the Baptists said amen. (laughs) And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit and all the Pentecostals said amen. Wow, this this is an interdenominational passage for us. Even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So get this, Gabriel comes to Zechariah, he says, look, you and Elizabeth are going to have a child. Even in your old age, even though she's barren, he's going to be super important because he is going to be the one, the second Elijah that, that Israel has been waiting for for centuries, that's going to be him. He's going to come and he is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. So this moment is monumental 
This is a one-of-a-kind moment for Zechariah. And what I want you to connect with is that this is a moment that is brought into fruition by God through the zeal of Zechariah. In other words, because Zechariah was zealous to serve God, because he was eager to serve God, he was where he needed to be. He was available to God, and God chose to work through him. Now, could God have accomplished his plan if Zechariah wasn't available, if Zechariah was, was being disobedient? Sure, God is sovereign. God can do whatever he wants to do. But Zechariah would have missed out. He would have missed this moment, this pivotal moment, this formative moment in his life. He would have missed the blessing of this moment. Let me ask you, how zealous are you for the Lord? How zealous are you to, to serve God with all that you have? Do, do you show up to church with a, with a deep passion to do what God has called you to do, or do you come out of obligation? You're like, yeah, I'm here. Now, let me just pause for a minute and the, the, yeah, I'm here guy is better than not coming at all. So you're, you're winning, all right? We're all winning if you're in this room. You made it. For those of you online, you're like half points, right? <laughs> but are you eager? Is your heart reflective of this desire, this deep desire or conviction to serve God in the way that he has designed you to serve? Are you zealous? Because understand this, whenever we are eagerly committed to Christ and his kingdom, you will experience things that you otherwise would miss out on. You will experience things. You will, you will be brought into things. God will use you in your availability to do things that you otherwise swing and miss on. You'll be given opportunities to share your faith, to share the gospel with the lost, to see the Holy Spirit bring someone to faith. You may even be privileged to baptize them. The more zealous you are to obey Christ, the more you will experience the things that you would otherwise miss out on by just sort of going through the motions. We wanna have our attention on Christ, but we wanna have our attention on him with, with conviction, right? With an eagerness to serve him in every way that we are able. We need more of the zeal of Zechariah. Second, let's look at the meekness of Mary. Now, verse 24 uh, gives some important details with regard to where we are in the timeline of this story, okay? So the, the Gabriel-Zechariah conversation ends, and it says in verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden. So after Zechariah's encounter with Gabriel, he goes home, Elizabeth conceives, and no one else knows about this pregnancy for five months. Now look at verses 26 and 27. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So we're introduced again to another man and woman. They're not married like Zechariah and Elizabeth are, but they are betrothed to become married at some point. And what we know of these two people is very little. We know that Joseph is born of the house of David, which is a pretty big deal. 
deal. He's a Davidic uh, descendant, which gives him claim to the throne or one of his descendants claim to the throne. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, right? Uh, And we know about Mary simply that she is a virgin. Six months have passed since Zechariah encountered Gabriel. And we kind of glazed over this, but Zechariah is currently in utter silence because of his disbelief. He doesn't initially believe Gabriel that Elizabeth is going to become pregnant with the forerunner of the Messiah. And so the angel Gabriel is like, yeah, you didn't really exhibit great faith, so uh, right, you're not going to speak until she is, uh, gives birth. This is an important side note, and, and I, wanna, I don't want to skip over this. Zechariah was a zealous man. He was available to be used by God, and yet he still exhibited disbelief. So what that means is that being zealous does not mean being obedient. It means having the desire to be obedient. It doesn't mean having all faith. It means having the desire to live by faith. Zealous people fail as well. Zealous people struggle with disbelief as well. Zechariah is silenced for this uh, by Gabriel. Six months pass, and then Gabriel comes to Mary. This is verse 28. Look at this. He says, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And her response in verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying. Now, this is interesting. I've never picked up on this until this week, really reading through this. She's greatly troubled when Gabriel shows up, just like Zechariah, but not in the same way. Zechariah seems to be very fearful of just the being Gabriel. He's a terrifying individual. Mary is troubled not apparently by what she sees in Gabriel, but by what he said, which is, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. Whenever an angel comes to a person in the Bible and says, oh, favored one, that means God's about to send you to do something that's probably going to be really difficult. (laughs) And Mary is apparently very aware of this. She is troubled. Verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying. So in verse 30, he explains further. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's okay, Mary, I bring good news. This isn't gonna be a bad thing. This is gonna be a great thing. And here it is. Here's the good news, verse 31 through 33. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So again, fascinating, fascinating details here. She's just been told you're going to have a baby. And this child is going to be called the son of the most high God. And he is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So in other words, Mary, your baby is going to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that Israel has been longing for for centuries. And her only concern with this is in verse 34. Well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? (laughs) Never mind the fact that you just told me I'm going to be the mother of the son of God. I want to know how this is going to work. And so Gabriel tells her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And that explanation seemed to be enough for her. Because listen to her response in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according 
to your word. Now, I want to speak to this for a moment. There's so much dramatization over the birth narrative of Mary. And, and a lot of the times it's done with the appeal to sort of create, uh, you know, a creative way of telling the story beyond what the Bible gives us. And I'm all about creativity as long as it's understood as creative and not biblical, right? But so much attention is often given to the fact that Mary was uh, likely very young here, probably 15 or 16 years old at this point, which sounds crazy to us today, but it was perfectly normal 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. Not normal for us today, very normal for then. But, but because it's not normal for us today, we often emphasize this point a lot, and we sort of read into the story our concerns for a 15 or 16-year-old girl who is now pregnant how she must have been scared to tell anyone, how she must have especially been scared to tell the man that she was betrothed to be married to, Joseph, and how she must have been thinking, he's never gonna believe me, I'll be a single mother, I'll be on, on my own and destitute and no one will care for me, no one will wanna marry me after this, I'll be ruined publicly. Those are the kind of details that we often present in this story about Mary. But, but look, when we look at the text and we allow the text to speak for itself, none of those details are present in the story. Not one of them. There are no clues that any of this kind of fear or angst is happening. We read angst and worry and fear into the text because that's how we think in 2022, not how Mary would have thought at all. Ironically, and I would be remiss if I didn't say this, here it comes, the like sucker punch of every Christmas message I've given so far. If we transplant Mary into our time, okay, so if we pull her out of the ancient world and we put her in 2022, this is exactly the kind of girl that would be highly, highly encouraged to have an abortion. I want you to think about this for a moment. She's a young girl, she's not married, she doesn't have a job, that she is young and pregnant with no work experience means that she probably won't have a job for a very long time. She won't be able to prove who the father is. She'll experience public shame. She'll have no means to support herself. And the fact that she is claiming that God supernaturally impregnated her will lead many to think that she needs psychiatric help. She is by the world standards today the ideal candidate for the pro-abortion movement. I want you to wrestle with that for a minute. I want you to think about that, that that is a reality that we live in right now. That the most vocal people for abortion would try to convince you that this would be the right thing to do for her. It's the humane thing. Let her have this abortion so that she can have a life, is how it would be said, right? And I want you to wrestle with the fact that if Mary chooses to have a life, we all get death. The pro-abortion movement goes after women who are actually just like Mary, the mother of God. It, it, it's sad and, and it's really interesting to me that the world crucified Jesus 2,000 years ago. But today I'm sure we would have tried our best to murder him before he was ever born. That's the world that we live in. Now to be clear, there was some risk involved for her. Joseph did, in fact, try to leave her, right? Matthew's gospel account talks about that. Matthew finds out that she's pregnant and is like, 
He's, a, he's an honorable man. It says that he, he decided to divorce her quietly so that there wouldn't be public shame, but he didn't believe her. And an angel has to come to him, presumably Gabriel. Matthew doesn't name him, but he seems to be the one active here in the account. And he has to tell him, hey, she isn't lying. This is the son of God. You need to name him Jesus. He's gonna save his people from his sins and Joseph obeys. But even still, Mary doesn't seem to be that, that worried at all about these real life consequences, about what people are gonna think or where she's gonna live or whether Joseph will believe her or how she's going to explain herself. She just trusts God. As real as these risks are, she's not rattled by any of it. She meets, understand this, difficulty with gentle strength. In other words, she's meek. That's the definition of meekness, power or strength under control. To exhibit strength in the face of difficulty, but to do so in a controlled manner. Listen to me, whenever God calls you into obedience, whenever he calls you out of what you're doing and into obedience, there is always, always a risk involved. Obedience to Christ always involves risk. You need to connect with that. When you choose Jesus, it will offend someone. You risk upsetting people for your decisions. You risk sometimes your job for making decisions out of the conscience that you have that is yielded in submission to Christ. You sometimes risk your social status, what people are gonna think of you, heaven forbid, on social media. Obedience to Christ upsets people, so we need meekness to look risk in the face and with strength under control say, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. I don't know how this is all gonna work out. I don't understand it. I have, I have uh, every bit of expectation that things are gonna be very hard for me as a result of it, but I'm here to serve. God, use me, use me. We need the zeal of Zechariah to be committed to the kingdom. We need the meekness of Mary to say yes to the kingdom despite the consequences that might follow. And third, we need the joy of John. Now, before we continue in the text, let's backtrack for a moment to cover something that we didn't give a whole lot of attention to, and it's an important detail that is gonna lead us to where we're going. If you go back to verses 14 and 15, Gabriel is talking to Zechariah about what kind of person John is gonna be. He's telling him what makes John so special, why he's an important figure. And he says this, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, up to this point, all of these things we assume are true of John for when he becomes a man. So he's gonna abstain from alcohol, wine, or strong drink, which indicates that he is uh, under the Nazarite vow, which is underlined in Numbers chapter six, gives the uh, kind of qualifications for the Nazaritic vow, which John seems to be under, a Nazarite for life. There's another individual, by the way, who was a Nazarite, two other individuals who were Nazarites for life. Uh, one of them was Samson, the other was Samuel. Uh, these are obviously important figures. That should underscore the importance of John as well. Um, but then look at the last little phrase. He says, even from his mother's womb. Now what does this mean? Like this changes the entire way we read this passage. John will be great before the Lord. He will not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit 
even from his mother's womb, even before he is born, these things will be true of him. Now, Zechariah, the moment that Elizabeth becomes pregnant, these things are binding upon your future son. Now, again, I think that this needs to be said. I did not intend to like drill into this topic this morning, but when in Rome, right? This is a text that is extremely problematic for Christians who support abortion. I I just have to say that to you. I need you to connect with this. If you are a Christian and you think that this is okay, you need to know your view is in direct opposition to the Bible, to Scripture. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, what we would call pneumatology, teaches that God enjoins to or indwells within human beings and only human beings. You never see the Spirit of God indwelling within an animal or an inanimate object. You never see that happen. It does not happen. What that means then, follow me, is that in order for John to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, he must be a human being in the womb. Regardless of what we think, regardless of what Elizabeth feels he must be a human in the womb. Are you following that? He's not a glob of cells. The Holy Spirit doesn't indwell a clump of cells. He indwells human beings. So again, as a side note, when I talk about allowing the Bible to direct the way you think about the world around you, this is an excellent example of what I'm talking about. We're always talking about the need for a biblical worldview, to think biblically, to think Christianly. In other words, the lenses through which you look at the world and everyone in it around you should be Bible-colored lenses and not secular-colored lenses because the two are very different. So in the case of the sanctity of human life or the value of human dignity, both which are directly tied to both pneumatology and anthropology, the Bible's view of man, you have different ways to view this, and they are in, they're in direct opposition to one another. You will either choose the world standards for human life, that it does not begin at conception, and you will be in opposition to the Bible, or you will choose the biblical standard that every life begins at conception, really even before that, since every life is known in the heart of God before the foundation of the world, and you will be in direct opposition to the world standards, and probably accused of opposing women's rights and being a bigot and all the things that come along with it. But understand this, you can't have both. You can't do both things. Either scripture informs your view or the world does. There there is no in-betweens. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. So get this, Christian. When you're forming your opinion on what is happening around you in the world, at least be honest about it. At least be honest. Don't claim the Bible's supremacy over your life and then ignore its claims in the real world. It's not supreme in your life then. And just be honest about that. Yeah, I believe parts of the Bible. But there are parts I'm not comfortable with, so I reject those. And and you can be accountable for that. Now, come back to the text where we left off, verses 39 through 40. In those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, why does Mary go with haste? It says that she gets out of there. She goes quickly. Remember, Gabriel has just told Mary about everything that's about to happen to her, but he also, in that whole dialogue, squeezed into that another detail that another woman was going to be pregnant, her cousin, or we think it's her cousin, her relative, Elizabeth. 
And Elizabeth is an old age. So this is like very hard for Mary to imagine. And so having just gotten this crazy news, she's like, I need to go see Elizabeth to verify this. And when she arrives, Elizabeth is more than six months pregnant and Zechariah is a mute. She's like, what happened here? And remember, no one knows that Elizabeth is pregnant. The only people that were aware was Zechariah, who can't speak, and Elizabeth, who's been hiding in the house for six months, and now Mary, because Gabriel delivered her the news as well. And no one knows that Mary is pregnant. No one has been told that at all. She's the only, maybe Joseph, but this could be going on simultaneously because it seems like as soon as she gets this news, she's out of there, right? So we're not even sure that Joseph is aware of what's going on yet. So Mary arrives, verse 41 and 42. It says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So get the significance here. John, who is already full of the Holy Spirit in the womb, senses the presence of the Lord in the womb and leaps in the womb. Again, clumps of cell don't do this. He leaps in the womb with joy because the Holy Spirit has brought him to recognize the presence of Christ. And watch this, his joy spills over, it is contagious, it falls into Elizabeth, and she then, by extension, it receives the Holy Spirit, and she immediately recognizes Christ. Verse 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She hasn't even been told Mary's pregnant. Mary opens the door, the baby's like, boom, she's like, oh, right, Holy Spirit on her. She immediately knows Jesus is here in your womb. This is an important truth. I want you to get this. You cannot know Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit. You cannot know Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit. It's not possible. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to regenerate us, to make us spiritually alive, and to reveal to us spiritual truth. So knowing Jesus, again, understanding the Bible, none of that has anything to do with how smart you are, it, has, it doesn't have any, anything to do with how well you are able to reason through details. It doesn't have anything to do with how many books a year you read. It is the Holy Spirit of God who reveals these things to us. Paul talks about this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Only those who are spiritual can understand. Only those who have received the Holy Spirit, only they can understand spiritual truth. This is one of the roles I think that joy is meant to play in the life of a believer. Joy is this unbreakable confidence in the goodness of God despite every bad thing that happens in your life around you. It's, so joy, understand this, it's not happiness. Happiness is weak and frail. Happiness shatters the moment something bad happens. We all want happiness. Happiness is the weakest thing you can ask for. Because the second something bad happens, it's over with. No more happiness. But joy is different. Joy is unbreakable. 
It is unbreakable. It stands in the midst of terror and destruction and heartache and it holds firm and it spills over into other people's lives. Verse 44, Elizabeth confirms this. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. The joy of John spills over. It's contagious. Let me ask you, are you a joyful Christian? Are you a joyful Christian? And again, I'm not talking about are you a happy Christian or a giddy Christian or an over-the-top excited Christian. Those are all great. We need like one or two of those. <laughs> I would lose my mind if it were the opposite. If like all, everyone, like that was the norm, just giddy over the top and I'm like the one, like, what's wrong with me? I feel defective. We need one or two of you to liven the mood, remind us of how sad and depressed we all are. But are you joyful? Do you have the joy of the Lord? And some of you may be thinking, well, of course not. Pastor Derek, my life has been really hard. Good. Because that means you're closer to joy than you've ever been. Because so often joy is connected to suffering in the Bible. James chapter one, verses two and three. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, steadfastness. Count it all joy when things fall apart. First Thessalonians 1.6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It's meeting hardship with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Romans 14.17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, we need the zeal of Zechariah to be committed to Christ and his kingdom. We need that to rub off on us. We need to be eager to serve Christ in every way that we are able to, to be more consistent in our faith practices. And we need the meekness of Mary to be able to face the call of God in our lives with devotion, to have strength under control, regardless of how scary it might be, to be able to say yes with conviction in control, gently. And we need the joy of John to recognize the presence of Christ in our life and to hold fast to this confidence of his goodness with joy. Really, I think you could summarize this whole message, this whole passage by just saying this, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. And some of you don't have him. You think that you're a Christian because you're a conservative or, or because you've grown up in church or because you prayed a prayer once at camp. But have you received the Holy Spirit? That's the question. If the answer is no, I wanna give you the opportunity now as we pray to respond to the gospel message that you are broken, that you are a sinner, but that Christ is a savior. And that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved and you will receive the Holy Spirit of God forever. That is the promise of scripture. That is the promise of God in the New Testament. And if you've never done that before, if you've never truly yielded your life to Christ in a radical way of surrender, and you've never received the Holy Spirit, then you do not belong to him, but you can. You can only if you have received his spirit. And that, folks, is the greatest gift that you could receive this Christmas. The eternal gift, the power of God 
and his presence in your life to serve him, to stand in the face of hardship, and to do so joyfully. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you, we praise you for uh, these people that you called, imperfect people, certainly, but people that you have shown your light down upon and called into your service that we might look to them as examples. I pray, God, that you'd give us an eagerness to serve you more every day, to share the gospel more every day, to see the lost saved every day. I pray that you'd give us strength under control to face this fallen world that we live in and that you'd give us the joy of your spirit. That even when we are sad, angry, challenged, that there is this tangible hope that flows out of us that other people are able to see and that it would be contagious, that it would be a witness to who you are, to your goodness in the lives of your people. We hold fast to these hopes, God, and we we thank you that you are light in our world, how we love you and we honor you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You know, I... I didn't say this in the message, um, but another interesting component of this story is that Mary is, of all the people, the one that has been sort of venerated in Christendom over the last 2,000 years, and yet, what's interesting is every single character in Luke chapter 1, except for Mary, receives the Holy Spirit. Mary doesn't seem to receive the Holy Spirit until Acts, when she is with the rest of the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them. That's, it seems like, when she actually receives the Holy Spirit of God. So that's just something for you to chew on as well. King's return tonight, 7 p.m., and let me say as well, please affirm the uh, elder nominees. We would love to uh, be able to present them to you next year. I think these are absolutely uh, the two best choices. We have a very, very deep bench, so to speak, of elder nominees. This church is blessed with a lot of godly leadership. Thank you for putting names in the basket. Uh, Please fill those out at your convenience. God bless you. We will see you tonight, hopefully at 7 p.m.